outline in your bulletin, which will also, with yes, will help. And you can scribble some notes down. You, if you've got a question, uh, you can put a question there in the comment card and put it in the box at the back. We will also have a question and answer time at the end, and uh, hopefully that'll be great. This is a tricky passage, uh, and next week will be as well. Last week was as well. Um, <laughs> but uh, particularly, what I want you to do this week is try to make sure that you don't get bogged down in details, but try to see the big picture. All right? Remember that as we go through. Try to see the big picture of what God's telling us here, and rather than saying, what, what exactly does that mean? What exactly does that mean? Uh, that'll be, I think, a helpful way to do it. As I said, we'll have our um, Q&A time at the end. If you've got a question about a specific, we'll see how that goes. Um, but I can't promise you um, complete, full, accurate, well, hopefully as accurate as I can be, answers. All right. Well, you know, one of, the, one of the great things, you know, you guys know that I'm a bit of a sports fan. I love watching sport on TV in particular. I love going to games as well. It's a good thing, fun thing to do. One of the things that we love, if you're a sports fan, you love watching the action replay. It's something we take for granted these days, I think. The action replay. See, if you miss a play, generally, you know, generally you can bank on the fact that it'll be shown again in the next minute or so. That's true. That's the action replay. And from various camera angles, we've got silly things that are float cameras up the top, which I hate that angle, by the way. And then there's angles from the, down the bottom, wherever it might be. Lots of camera angles. Now, if you even go to a match, so you go to Stadium Australia or you go to Allianz Stadium. Allianz Stadium has a huge big screen, massive thing. And of course, if you're there, you can, if you miss the try or miss the cricket shot or miss, you know, something else being played, then you can turn around and you can watch it on the big screen again. In fact, everyone does. They score a try or whatever happens, score a goal, and everyone goes, like that. All the heads move. It's like some weird, you know, I don't know, mass movement of people. Uh, there it is. And, and again, it's from different camera angles. Now, what's frustrating, if you're a bit of a sports lover, is that when you go and watch little Johnny play cricket, or you know, little um, whoever playing their game, uh, if you miss a play, if you miss something when you're watching it live down at the local footy club, there's no action replay. You can't do it. You can't ask them to do it again, can you? Or can you just play that play again? I missed it. I was looking at my phone or something. You can't do that. And so that's, we take action replays for granted, I think. That's what we do. I find it pretty frustrating when I go and watch my, um, my son play. Um, my eldest, actually, Wes is playing in a grand final. Well, not a grand final, a final today. So I might, my chances I might nick away from, um, from uh, the, the morning tea a bit quicker if you're wondering where I am and go and watch Wes play. Anyway, um, let, me, let me come back to action replays in a minute because I'm going somewhere with this. Last week, we talked about this long second vision and how it's broken up into four sequences of smaller visions. You might remember that. Importantly, these are not to be read as consecutive, so that's wrong. All right? What we're trying to do instead, we're meant to read them as, uh, as concurrent. They overlap. They're not chronological, so they sort of overlap on one another. So tyranny, we looked at last week, chapters 6 and 7, and this week is all about chaos Next week, persecution. The week after, destruction in chapters 15 and 16. Now, what John does with these sequences is he separates them and he examines them one at a time. So he pulls them out and examines them one at a time as the will of God is unveiled. Remember, revelation means unveiling. The Greek word is apocalypse. 
Now, you could say they are different pictures of the same reality. So the left-hand side of the screen there, different pictures of the same reality. Or, wait for it, they're different camera angles of the same action replay, of the same event, you see? Same, uh, different camera angles of the same action replay of the same event, um, the, the, the same period even, if you want to put it that way. So today's camera angle of the action replay that we're looking into, that we're reading of, uh, is what we've called chaos. Now you'll see why, as we work through the text in front of us, why it's called chaos. Now one thing we're confronted with, as we read through chapters 8 to 11 in particular, is a difficult one, and that is of God's judgment on the world and sin today, and then we've got to ask why. For it's not just non-believers who are judged, believers are caught up in God's judgment on sin. As Jesus says, he sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now in that context, rain is a bad thing. But why? Why such chaos at God's hand, with God's permission? Why does he do that? Well, perhaps it works like this. So you're studying hard for your university exams, or your HSC, or something like that, okay? Uh, but it's not just one exam at the end, is it? It's not just one judgment. <laughs> uh, you have to pass and get through a number of assessments, don't you? A number of assignments, which will all count for your final mark, your final judgment. Now, students often ask teachers, why are we doing so many assessments and why are we doing this one and that one? And the answer is so that these trials or smaller assessments, these smaller judgments, or to remind us of the bigger one that's coming. Do you see? It seems to me that's what God is doing here, in, in particularly in verse, chapters 8 to 11. Today, as we live through the chaos um, we'll read about, that's what God is doing. His judgment on sin today should remind us of the final judgment that is coming. It should therefore lead us to repentance. It should therefore lead us to stop worshipping the idols of this world of this life and instead turn to serve the living and true God. So, uh, and that's, a, that's our next question then, isn't it? Well, okay, well, how do we live in the chaos? How do we live amongst all that's going on, amongst God's judgment on the world on sin today that these, uh, these trumpets bring about? Anyway, so first we need to turn again to Revelation. Revelation chapter 8, it's a long introduction, but I hope you've seen why that's important. And the seventh seal is open. It's where we left it last week. What is this seventh seal? We're leading up to that. Well, the seventh seal serves as a bridge, really, to the next sequence. It introduces the trumpets. But first, there's, uh, there was silence in heaven. Silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, my guess is for John, that felt like a long time. Do you know when you have a moment silent at, a, at a, an event or an assembly of some sort, or Anzac Day, you have a minute silence I don't know about you, but that minute always feels much longer than a minute. Is that, is that just me? I don't know. It seems like it goes on forever. Standing, waiting, waiting, waiting. I think that's what it was like for John at this time. It was a silence for half an hour, but it probably felt like forever. Uh, now, why was there silence? Well, we're not told. We're not told. Maybe it's in preparation, sort of uh, get your, gird yourself up. You're about to hear the trumpets. The trumpets are about to be announced. But they're going to herald in a new, uh, uh, this this time. Well, John sees seven angels who are given seven trumpets. 
These trumpets herald the judgment of God on the world which God created but has rejected him. The trumpets are only blown after the silence and after the prayers of the saints that rise up like incense to God. Now, sometimes we might feel that our prayers are a waste of time. That is not true. Our prayers, and perhaps here the prayers of godly saints pleading for justice and mercy in the world, maybe that's what it is. These prayers are a prelude to the judgments described in the following verses. Well, let's move to the six trumpets then. Cosmic chaos. That's one way we describe what's about to be... Or one, a few words to describe what, what we're about to hear. Cosmic chaos is, on the world is depicted here in verses 6 to 12 as the first four trumpets are blown. And they're in contrast to the good heavens and earth that we read about in Genesis chapter 1. Remember that phrasing at the end of each day, at the end of Genesis, and God saw all that he'd made and it was good. So here is a direct contrast to that. In other words, what's described here is the fallen world that, that is in Genesis chapter 3 onwards. Broken and subject to profoundly destructive forces. The world is no paradise. As the trumpets are sounded, terrifying destruction is hurled down on the earth or at the earth. So uh, John uses these uh, very... Well, they're, they're words that should remind us of creation. But of course, this is the contrast of what we see in Genesis 1 and 2. So trees, grass, sea, rivers, waters, sun, moon, stars. John even uses some of the words that describe the plagues of the Exodus. So in other words, the judgment of the Egyptians parallels the judgment here. John mixes those metaphors up a little bit. Now, it's hard. It's hard. It's, well, I should say it's not hard to get a reminder of, of this when we watch our, when we turn on, on, on our television screens or when we scroll through the news on our phones. We, we see cyclones, flooding, drought, mudslides, mountainous seas, surging volcanic lava, raging bushfires. You know, at least today we have decent warnings of these sort of natural disasters, don't we? But in John's days, so we, we have tsunami warnings, we have bushfire danger ratings, that type of thing. But in John's day, didn't have that. that. They were almost completely helpless against these great forces. And I guess like us, really, the only difference is sometimes we can get out of the way. But these events are not the end. So only one-third is destroyed. It's not three-thirds. That is, it's many, but not a majority. And trumpet-like, these announcements herald the end. So it is God's partially revealed wrath pointing to a wrath to be completely revealed at the end. It's the, the assessments, the smaller judgments that point to the greater judgment to come. But trumpets 5, 6 and 7 tell, us, uh, tell of an even worse judgment not on the physical frame of the cosmos anymore, this world we live in, but on the chief caretakers of this earth. And who's that? Well, that's us, the inhabitants. So 5, 6 and 7 point to a judgment on this earth and the people who inhabit the earth, and that is us. So therefore the angel, so the eagle, 
uh, calls out in a loud voice in verse 13 of chapter 9. No, chapter 8, I should say. Verse 13, chapter 8. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the three other angels. At this point, we, we hold our breath. What, what could be worse than what we've just read? What we've just read is, is incredible. Chapter 9, verse 1, the fifth trumpet is sounded. It signifies spiritual torture. And the source of this suffering is Satan, who is called destroyer. In uh, 9 verse 11, that's what the, the Hebrew and the Greek words mean. They mean destroyer. The angel of the abyss. Now, we're not told who the fallen star is in 9 verse 1, uh, which was, a, was given the key to open the abyss. We're not told that. But this abyss is like some volcano that's, that's opened up spewing out deadly lava but instead of lava which is spewed out it's the armies of satan it's spiritual warfare having a go at people in this world they're locusts described as locusts bent on causing carnage in people's lives but you know locusts don't come in ones and twos do they locusts comes they come in thousands and thousands and they swarm in these large numbers ripping through crops, for example. The description of these satanic spiritual forces swarming like locusts in verses 7 to 10 of chapter 9 is particularly gruesome. Their sting, back in verse 6, their sting, maybe, maybe the sting is described here, the, the analogy, the metaphor is Satan's grip on someone's life causes someone to long for death itself. Maybe this is someone who's, who's, who's caught up in the depths of sin. Maybe you've known someone like that. Maybe that's been you one day until God worked in your life. Caught up in the depths of sin and they, they, all, they just longed for death. Not unheard of. But look who their targets are. Look who Satan's targets, who Satan targets. It's not Christians. No, no, the devil targets his own. Look at 9 verse 4. Those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. That's the nature of the devil. He's not only the accuser of God's people. We'll look at that next week in chapter 12 verse 10. He's the tormentor of his own. He's no friend or mate. He's no one you want to party with. No, no, no. He torments his own. He targets his own, devouring them, as 1 Peter 5 says. See, when, when, when people turn their backs on Jesus, and whether they do that in witchcraft or sorcery or whatever it might be, or just worshipping the dollar and going for material things, whether they turn, when people turn their backs on Jesus, they place themselves in the hands of a tormentor. That's who they place themselves in not a friend. Well, we're told their spiritual torture would last five months. In other words, I think just a period of time. That's it. 
Some commentators reckon this is a period within history, maybe in the, within the Roman history, Roman Empire history. Um, I'm not quite sure about that, and I think that breaks a few of the rules that I introduced a few weeks back as well. So I think just a period of time. 9 verse 12, the first woe is past, two other woes are yet to come. Verse 13, chapter 9, the sixth angel sounded his trumpet. John hears a voice, voice of God, no doubt, coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before him. That's the prayers of the saints. Again, we need to see that it appears, that though it appears weak and ineffectual, prayer is in fact powerful. Verse 14, the four angels, evil angels, are bound at the river Euphrates, who are bound at the river Euphrates, are released. Their numbers are overwhelming. So many you can't count them. In verse 16, uh, skip down there, they're in the millions. In other words, uh, there's so many. It's just overwhelming. That, that's the picture here. Um, just overwhelming. Now, the Euphrates was the home of the, the dreaded Parthians in those days. Just a bit of ancient history for you. They had hordes of galloping cavalry, which they would attack foreign nations, and so very threatening. Uh, everyone was scared of them. And they were, they were on that particular side of the river Euphrates. And the Rome, people in the Roman Empire feared that they would come and get them as well. So, trying to get inside John's head there. What's described here, though, is no foreign invader. The analogy is Satan's armies, like the marauding Parthians who are on their way. But this time they, they come to kill with plagues of fire and smoke and sulphur. Again, I think images come to mind of the starved, sick children in drought-ravaged Africa or bombs exploding with chemical gases in the Middle East or beautiful cities destroyed by the armies of ISIS. Here is evil people uh, working Satan's work, taking people out, killing. But once more, though, this is not the end. Many are killed and symbolically represented by a third. You see that in verse 15? but the greater majority are spared. So here's the big question we've got to ask at this point. We know what's going on. Here's God's judgment on the world. right? God allows this to happen. They get permission. It's something we're going to wrestle with as we keep going through Revelation. But the question here is, will those who survive judgment, who survive these evils... The question is, will those who survive understand that these evils are preparing us for the final judgment? A judgment that will engulf all, not just a third. Will they get it? Will they get the fact that the, the, the big exam is coming? The judgment is coming? So will they now repent and, and turn back to God? Back in the 1980s, I saw, I'm, I'm sorry I have to bring this up, um, there was a one-hit wonder song called a Belinda Carlisle song. Yeah, do you know, there's a few people, uh, there's a few nods, thank you. I've got no nods at 8am at all. There you go. <laughs> Hard to believe, isn't it? Hard to believe of this. So do you know the song? Ooh, baby, do you know what it's worth? Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. Great song. I remember dancing in, no, you don't want to see that. Um, but uh, you can feel free to sing it in your head now. Gary, do you play this at your bands? I want to. You want to. Who wouldn't want to? <laughs> What a song. Now, it's, it, it is, it's, it, I don't blame her for the sentiment. Don't you? Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. That's what we want. Sure. What, who doesn't want a better world and a perfect world, a, a utopia, as people write about? In fact, it would be selfish not to try to make, improve this world, 
to make it a better place, a place of justice and kindness, for example. Who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want to sing with, with Belinda? Um, <laughs> but heaven will never be a place on earth as long as sin exists, as long as Satan is allowed to roam. The earth will be full of chaos. Now the truth is, we'll get to this later in Revelation 2, is that the new Jerusalem does not arise out of the old, it descends from heaven as God's gift. It doesn't come from the old, like we're transforming the old. The reality is, as it's unveiled, as verse 20 reads, people won't just turn back to God and repent of the chaos and repent because of the chaos that surrounds them. That's the reality. People won't just come back to God because of the chaos that surrounds us. People will simply continue in their ways, searching for a heaven on earth, worshipping their idols and longing for something that this world will not give. So what do they need? What do they need then that will cause someone to turn away from idols and worship the true and living God? What they need is prophecy. What they need, what they need is the word of God. It's God's word that explains the chaos. It's God's word that opens the seals. It's God's word that makes sense of life. It's God's word that delivers the message of, the, of salvation, of being right with God. It's God's word that delivers people from darkness. It's God's word that delivers them from the wrath of God. That's what they need. Well, let's now turn to the interludes. Uh, this or the interlude, actually, as they, as we, sort of two parts to it, really, as we prepare for the seventh trumpet, and let's see what it says about God's word. Well, in in ten verse one, we're introduced to a mighty angel. It's a great picture. He's holding a smaller scroll, which is laid open in his hand. We'll see what that is in a minute. There's a contrast here that us, the reader, need to see with this comparing this mighty angel to what we might feel as we go through life. You see, the perception of Jesus, the perception of Christianity on this earth, well, is pitiful and ineffectual. That's the perception of Christians. People scoff at Christians and scoff at the gospel and laugh, make fun of. But look at this angel and look what he's holding. There's a great contrast. The reality is a towering structure, a towering stature of this angel. And what is he, you notice he's standing over sea with his legs spread out, standing over sea and land. In other words, he's emphasising that God is sovereign over all, everything. That's the reality. Nothing to be pitiful about. When this angel spoke, it was the voice of seven thunders. It's almost we ought to gasp. <gasps> seven thunders. God's completeness here. Complete, whole, perfect. But John is told not to write it down. I'm not sure why. <laughs> I don't know. Not sure. We've wrestled with it all week. <laughs> maybe, he's gonna, maybe as we get later on, we hear uh, some more. The angel announces, this is chapter 10, verses 6 and 7, that there will be no more delay. Well, the seventh trumpet is about to sound. That's good, we all say. Excellent, fantastic. Because remember, that's what these interludes do. 
they prepare us for the seventh part of this little structure. The mystery of God will be revealed. So look at verse 7. Chapter 10. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, we're still waiting for that, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants the prophets. God's servants, mentioned in verse 7, I think the reference here is the New Testament prophets, the apostles, they already know this mystery. The apostles know this mystery. In fact, Paul talks about this mystery of God that's been made known in Christ. But will they declare it in times of persecution and suffering and danger? Surely being exiled on Patmos is bad enough, John says. Oh, really? Do I have to declare it some more? Will the, will the prophets be brave? Will we who know the mystery of God, that's the gospel, be brave? 10 verse 8. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and the land. Verse 9. So I went to the angel and asked him to, to give me the little scroll. It's like a, a recommissioning of John, isn't it, in some ways? He said to me, take and eat it. It'll turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it'll be as sweet as honey. That's just what prophecy is, isn't it? That's what God's word is. It's bitter and sweet. It's painful to some and pleasurable to others. Well, will John take it? Will he do it? Will his readers pick up the scroll and speak the prophetic word, God's word, the gospel, to a world full of chaos? Well, despite the bitterness of the scroll and his upset tummy, I took, this is verse 10, I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I'd eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages and kings. It's the whole world this time. It's not just Israel. Well, in 11 verse 1 and through to verse 14, we now see why the message of prophecy is bitter. Two prophets or witnesses are killed in the street of the city where they are prophesying. Like in many parts of the world today, declaring the word of God and the testimony of Jesus may well cost you your life. Now, we're not sure who these prophets are. We're not told. Uh, these witnesses to Jesus. Maybe they're just examples. Uh, perhaps John's elusiveness in giving us more details is because he wants to protect the Christians who received this letter, who were alive at the time, and he wants to throw the persecutors off the scent. Maybe that's what it is. So maybe these two are real people who um, are prophesying at the time, and maybe this has just taken place. It all, it all seems to take place in Jerusalem, where Jesus died, we're told, uh, where the prophets were given 42 months, three and a half years, 1,260 days to prophesy. And they're doing that in sackcloth. Sackcloth is representative of mourning, uh, preaching, repentance and judgment. Three and a half years. Hmm. Now, as I said last week, I, I did three unit maths at school and I remember nothing of it at all. Now, uh, completely useless to me. But here's what I do know about maths, is that half of seven is three and a half. That's pretty good maths, isn't it? Thought you'd like it. Um, half of seven is three and a half. So remember seven? Seven is complete. The complete number, God's number, 
right? It's just symbolic. All numbers are symbolic, of course. But this, sim- this number seven symbolizes God's wholeness, complete, not broken. Okay? Three and a half, therefore, well, is broken. It's incomplete. It's cut short. Now, I, I wanted to find one of these particular uh, columns in Robertson's Cemetery, but we didn't have one. Um, a, a column that is half or, or, or a half a column in a cemetery usually indicates a life cut short. It's a young person who's died. Now, thankfully, there's none up in the, up in the cemetery in Robertson I looked at yesterday. But that's what it is. A life cut short, it's incomplete. Now, that's, that's the analogy that, that's being used here. 3.5 years, half of seven, uh, 42 months, the same, same time period, uh, 1260 days, three and a half. A life cut short, incomplete. And that's the case with these two witnesses to Jesus, these two prophets. Tom, uh, as uh, time would tell, that's been an example in Christian life and ministry over the years. Uh, preachers, missionaries die when they're on the field preaching the gospel. Um, ministers of the gospel die young and we wonder why. Well, their life is cut short. Well, uh, following these days, these 1260 days, these three and a half years, the beast that comes out of the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. Their time is cut short. Their bodies are left out in the open for unbelievers to gloat, make fun of even. That's not uncommon today, isn't it? A response like that, although not as gruesome, unbelievers gloating at the demise of Christianity. It shouldn't really surprise us. Now, there's a lot more to say in chapter 11, but we're going to go across and look at the seventh trumpet. You might have a question about chapter 11, it might come up in a minute. But let's go to chapter, seven, uh, chapter 11, verse 15. And finally, the seventh trumpet is sounded. The mystery of God that was mentioned back in chapter 10, long hidden, will now be revealed. There's no more delay. And no one would have guessed it because it's been revealed not at the end of all things, this mystery of God, but the mystery of God has been revealed in the middle of it all, during the chaos. During all the chaos. The mystery of God has been revealed. What's the mystery exactly? Well, I've, we've mentioned a few times, haven't we? But look at verse 15. Chapter 11, verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. This ought to take us back to chapter 5 a few weeks back, which, which spoke of the triumphant lion of the tribe of Judah, and he triumphs by his sacrificial and redemptive death. The lion is a lamb. The lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah is the lamb of God who was slain, who now is triumphant and reigns. See, the conquest of the lamb and the now arrived kingdom of God are present realities. So we live in now, we live amongst the chaos. But the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain, is reigning. They're present realities based on past events. What's the past event? Is the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's tie a few things together and we'll see if anyone's got any, um, any questions. Uh, how, how, then, how then do we live in this chaos? Well, I want to give you six, uh, sorry, five little points to, um, to remember if you can. You can scribble them down if you've got some notes, some, uh, some uh, 
room on the notes. There's not much room in the notes. Sorry about that. Good luck. I'll leave it up on the screen. Anyway, here's number one. We ought to know the reality of trumpets one to six and seven, that Jesus reigns amongst the chaos. The kingdom of God is now. We ought, we ought to know the reality. Okay, That's the first thing. The second one, but we don't know everything, but God does. And that's okay. That's good. Third, we live in the age of the gospel, God's mystery being revealed. So will you prophesy and take up the scroll? Will you do it? John did. Will you do it? It's a, it's a bittersweet gospel, bringing life to those who believe and death to those who turn their back on Jesus. And fifth, know that the word of God will be vindicated. God's victory is permanent. The world's victory is limited. Five things. How about I pray? Father, we, uh, we thank you for your good words to us. Lord, there's a lot to remember today and a lot to think about, a lot to digest. Uh, one of the things we ought to digest is your good word that word of prophecy in the gospel. Lord, it's a bitter and sweet message. Lord, we pray that, we would, um, that you would help us to take up that scroll and share it with others. Lord, thank you that you are in control of all things. And Lord, we, we wrestle with the chaos that is in this world at the moment and the pain that it causes. But may we not miss the point that it points us to the great judgment to come when your son Jesus comes uh, to this earth the second and final time. Lord, we thank you for your word today. We thank you. We pray that we would put it into practice. In Jesus' name, amen.